This is Peak Earth. I'm Case Bradford. Thanks for tuning in to this episode with Miles Snyder. Miles is a chef, and we discuss his journey becoming a professional chef at Hartwood, an open fire restaurant in the jungle of Tulum. How he went from gutting fish in the back to managing a 60 item mise en place at a very busy, high velocity, open flame restaurant. We also discuss why one would want to cook with a living fire tapping into their cooking intuition, becoming an Anthony Bourdain of the open flame. Fascinating conversation. We talk about the power of bio-regional local cuisine and why one would want to learn to cook at home, to gather community around good food. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do as well. I appreciate anyone who has shared an episode of Peak Earth across social media or left a five-star review on Apple or Spotify. That is all deeply meaningful for me, really warms my gizzard. And without any further ado, hope you enjoy this episode with Miles. All right, I'm here today with Miles Snyder. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Really excited to connect with you. I've been enjoying everything that you create online, sharing around food and health, nutrition, cooking. It's, it's amazing uh, what, what you share on online. And it's such an important, such an important part of life that is, that is missing, it seems like, in, in, in the world. And you make it really accessible and, and compelling. Um, so I guess in a roundabout way, also stoked, stoked to talk to you about, about all this. Um, yeah, how'd you... How did you get started? And and I guess what 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 do you how do you how do you look at your your role as as a creator? So I guess um, I'll talk about. I mean, in terms of a, me being a creator online, I you know I I've been very into cooking for a very long time. Um, and a, like a couple of years ago, I I started doing more stuff where I was like showing that online, and I just found that I I really enjoyed it. Like I love it means a ton to me to to cook, and there's so many aspects of it that I think are really important that bring a lot of value to people's lives. There's like the health aspect. There's the part of just like, you can save a lot of money by cooking at home. There's the social aspect of, you know, bringing people together. Um, there's, you know, lately I've been really into this aspect of just like using, like encouraging people to use their hands and their senses and have hobbies that are tactile and get away from screens and all that. So there's all these different like angles for, for why I think that home cooking is something that can bring a ton of value to people's lives. So I've just been trying to find ways to like share that and, and encourage people to to do more of it. Um, and this year, like earlier this year was when I first started doing that on Twitter. Um, you know, I'd done stuff on like Instagram. I did a lot of stuff on TikTok. And I just found that Twitter was like this really interesting place to do it because there one, there's not a lot of people who are doing like cooking specific content on Twitter. You know, if you compare that to other social media platforms, they're like, they're, they're flooded with cooking content. Um, but I also just found that like Twitter to me felt like it was the most like social, social network. Like it was the network where I was actually like connecting with people and felt like I was building relationships through like DMing them or like, you know, getting to know people. Like when I was doing TikTok, it, it didn't feel that way. Um, so I've kind of just like really leaned into Twitter as, as a place to do that. And, and it's been, it's been awesome. Beautiful. And I, I agree. Completely. It does. It almost feels like a giant group chat where you can, and, and as a creative medium, it, it's a lot more, seems to be more dynamic than, than Instagram or, or TikTok where you've kind of got like a certain layout for, for the, for what you're making. Yep. It's just kind of like in that one sort of dimension versus Twitter. You've got sort of the idea of a thread where you can kind of tell a story and, and provide yep. you know, pictures or mix it with the video. And then it does feel like more of a social network because the, everyone's comments are kind of the same size. It's not like, here's my giant thought and then like a bunch of little thoughts on, under it. It's like, we're all in this together. Totally. Yeah. I think there's like, there's a bunch of little things you could probably identify about Twitter that make it that way. But like when taken as a whole, it's just like, you know, there's, there's so many people who I've connected with on Twitter who I've then gone on to connect with in real life or just met, met them online. And I feel like I've actually, you know, like built those relationships. I feel like I've met, some super, super cool people on Twitter. It's a great way to kind of like, you start putting your ideas out there and then you start seeing, you know, and meeting other people whose, whose ideas overlap. And then you start talking and it's, it's pretty cool. Um, you know, I've, I'm obviously aware of like the, the downsides of social media and our digital age and, and all that. But I, I think like generally Twitter has been a, a net positive 
for me, especially when it comes to sharing this cooking stuff. Yeah, it, it is crazy how, how like minds seem to sort of connect and there's almost like a gravity to it where if you're sharing authentically and, and we are also, th this was a recent th realization for me as well, where I thought social media was a net negative for a long time. Was, but then I started using it in that way where connecting with like minded people and sharing what was true to me and, and then f connecting with people in, in real life. It was, uh, it's yeah. been pretty crazy. You know, what's also been pretty interesting for me to see is like, I, so I was doing a lot of like TikTok content um, over the course of the past, like two years doing cooking stuff. And I built up like a pretty big following on, on, on TikTok, like, you know, much larger than, than I have on Twitter. Um, but what I found was that even when my Twitter following was like tiny, the amount of people who kind of became a Twitter follower and then like also clicked out to my newsletter and subscribed to my newsletter or like reached out to me or were willing to like buy a product was just so much higher. Whereas I think some of these other platforms, especially, you know, TikTok, but Instagram is kind of going in that direction. It's like people are really just there for like entertainment. Um, and, you know, you could put a lot of work into a piece of content, but people will just watch it and then keep scrolling. They're, they're less likely to like leave the app and actually, um, you know, go do something more. And so I think for like, just from like the business mindset of a creator, I think that Twitter is actually a much more powerful platform. Um, I mean, like with you, with your podcast, I'm sure there's more people who are going from Twitter and then becoming podcast subscribers than you get on some of these other platforms. Because I think with the other platforms, people are a little bit more just locked in and they just want to consume the content. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's also true with just making, making friends or finding guests for the, for the podcast or just like, you know, finding people to co-create with. Yeah. It, it's just really kind of the, the whole point I think of, of life in general and also just social media as, as like an expression of life, just finding, finding people to jam with and, and co-create with. And totally the platform itself is, is such a, interesting way to express creativity because I, I find this interesting balance between like creating authentically what is like true to me versus like in a way that's trying to get attention or, or kind of like get play with the crowd do you find that on do you find that tension within yourself and like how do you how do you navigate that yeah I find that tension a lot I mean I think that with Twitter it's like if the goal was strictly to maximize the number of followers I think there would I would take a different approach like it's very clear that like a certain type of thread performs the best, right? Uh, you kind of have this like hook. You saw it for a while where everyone's kind of copying the same format where it was like sleep is super important, but 99% of people aren't getting enough sleep. Here's what you need to do. You know, here are five tips to improve your sleep kind of thing. And you kind of saw everyone doing the same thing because it was, that's kind of what was performing within the algorithm. And you see this on other platforms too. You know, there's like a lot of the people on TikTok have, really figured out like a very specific formula to um, kind of game the algorithm. And I think with Twitter, I, I sometimes go back and forth because, you know, I, I would like to expand my following and, and reach more people and all that, but I don't want to do anything that's, that's not authentic. And so I've had certain ideas for like threads that I would do that I think maybe would like perform really well, but if they don't feel actually authentic to me, then, then I don't, I don't want to do them. Um, and so it is a balancing act. I don't have like a, a perfect answer for it, but I think I do try and like check anytime I put something out, I'm like, does this, does this really, is this coming from the heart? Is this coming from me? Is this like, you know, something that I really am like proud to share or is it designed to strictly to like reach a bunch of people and, and get a bunch of engagement? Um, and I think you can, you can do something that does both. Um, but that, that can be a, a little bit harder to do. Um, and so I, I've like, I'm actively trying to, to grow on there and, and reach more people, but I don't want to do it in a way that is not authentic to, to who I am or, or the, the stuff that I, I really want to share. Um, and I think that it's actually, I think that approach is m more beneficial in the long run. Like you, and it, you know, it depends what your goals are, but like, it, you know, if one of your goals is to build a business, um, you know, there's examples of like interesting people who, who don't have massive followings, but have built businesses um, because they have like a really, whether it's like a niche thing or it's just a smaller group of people who are really into what they're doing. Whereas sometimes I think some, some people who, who just chase growth at all costs, they get these really high follower counts, but the average follower of theirs doesn't really know who they are. They just saw a thread, hit follow. They're not very invested in who that person is. 
but maybe you see someone like, uh, you know, Van Man is an interesting example. Like, uh, you know, he's built this like really substantial business um, with his like skincare and, and dental products. Um, and like, you know, his following is, is getting bigger. But I remember when I first started following him, it was it was quite small. But people just really loved his products because they were really good products. Um, and so I think that if you're willing to kind of be more authentic and take that slow growth route, there's actually a lot of benefits to it. It's so true in, in almost everything, I feel like, where there's, there's this trade-off between like quick and mainstream and sort of like cookie cutter approach versus like more of like a slow, authentic, long-term view of things. And I know that definitely plays a role in cooking as well. There's the whole like slow food movement kind of touches on that, which I think was probably, I don't know when that started, but um, probably like 80s. Started in Italy, I think in like 60s, 70s, something. Yeah. Did you learn much from that sort of approach? Is, is Did you um, get into that at, at any point? Yeah. I mean, I, I, so I was never like directly involved with like the slow food movement, the like the, the um, official organization, but the, the ethos of slow food, I would say influenced a lot of the people who, who influenced me the most. The reason I'm into cooking really at all is because of my mother, who is a phenomenal um, cook. She was a classically trained chef and she's from California and kind of um, she was coming of age during that time of like California cuisine um, when, you know, sort of like the the Bay Area movement with Alice Waters and then the movement that was happening in LA where it was almost like a lot of European influence, but taking advantage of the just incredible biodiversity of California and a really like ingredients focused approach to food. Um and so my, uh, after my parents met, they moved back to Cleveland, Ohio, where my dad is from. Uh, and that's where I was raised. But my mom kind of kept that like California ethos. And we were going to farmer's markets when I was, you know, super young before these, these were really like a thing. And I think that um, you can kind of trace a line from like the slow food movement to what was happening in the Bay Area with like Chez Panisse and, and all that to California cuisine and then how that influenced my mom and then influenced me. Um and then, you know, also when I think about the, just like the type of food that I most enjoy and some of the restaurants and chefs that have been most influential to me, it's like, you know, Jelena in LA is a big one. Like that's like one of my favorite places of all time. Um, and the core ethos of that restaurant is basically slow food. It's like really meticulous sourcing, really seasonal, really putting the product first, not going overboard with like technique or preparation. Uh, it's about letting those ingredients shine. Even even just hearing you say all that makes me makes me hungry, <laughs> makes me want to go get in the kitchen, <laughs> cook something. So I I know that you you spent time. I listened to a couple other podcasts that that you recorded, and you talked a little bit about your history as as a chef working and learning down in in Mexico. And yeah, I guess I'm I'm curious, like how did that come to be? Like what what were the seeds of that journey? Yeah, so. I, you know, growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, like we didn't have particularly great Mexican food, but the the stuff that we did have, it was always like my favorite. And then we would go out to California to visit uh, my mom's family a lot. And, you know, there I would eat really, really good Mexican food. And like those flavors were just always the ones that I gravitated towards most. I'm really into, like, I love chilies. I love spice, um, you know, tomato, avocado, beans, like these like long, you know, stewed meats and braises and tortillas. And these were just all flavors that I always really, really, really liked. And so when I was in college, I studied abroad in Argentina and I became fluent in Spanish when I lived there. So when I graduated from college and I was thinking about going to cooking school, I was like, you know, I kind of just had this idea of like, what if I did that in Mexico instead of the United States? Um, one, it, I just knew it would be a lot cheaper to... I would be able to kind of explore this cuisine that I was so curious about. Um, and three, a lot of the cooking schools in the United States are like these four year, super long programs. And I, I didn't want to do something like that. I wanted to do um, something shorter. And so I guess even prior to that, I'd, I'd really gotten into Mexican food just via like cookbooks and stuff. There's, um, there's this author named Diana Kennedy, who's, uh, basically she's like an anthropologist and a historian first, and then a cookbook author second. I wouldn't even really call her a chef, but she 
spent all of this time traveling through Mexico in uh, like the 80s and the 90s, going to all these small towns, collecting recipes from the people there, learning how to how to cook um, and, and compiling them into these cookbooks that are like really these incredible historical artifacts of like regional cuisine in Mexico. So I started cooking from her books, Rick Bayless's books, and I just became fascinated by Mexican food, both from like a flavor angle, because it's just it's the flavors that I that I like the most. But also there's this just incredible like anthropological angle, the history of how that cuisine came to be and the influence of the Spaniards who who conquered Mexico and the 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 native cuisine that was already there, plus all of the foods that actually originate there. You know, corn is from Mexico, beans are from Mexico, tomatoes are from Mexico. There's a bunch of herbs that are uh, native to Mexico. Um, it's it's super biodiverse. And then you have also this these different like regional cuisines. You know, the cuisine in Baja is much different from the cuisine in Oaxaca or Baja or um, like the Yucatan. And so it just, I was like, wow, you could spend a lifetime just studying this, this food culture. Um, and so I found a program that was in Mexico city. That was a six month program. It was kind of a, uh, you know, an exploration of these different regions of, of Mexico, um, and their cuisines. And so I did that, uh, that was my cooking school and I did that for six months. And then I was having such a good time down there that I was like, I'm not, I'm not going back just yet. And that's when I decided that I should go work at a restaurant. And so I found this restaurant in Tulum called Heartwood that was an open fire restaurant, like in the jungle in Tulum. I got a job there and then went and cooked there for a year. That sounds like an incredible experience, an open fire restaurant in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the jungle of Tulum. Man, what was, what was that like on your first few days walking in there and, and learning the ropes? So it's funny because, so I, I had cooked like a couple summers in college at restaurants, but they were like very, they, they weren't high quality restaurants by any means, or they, they certainly weren't like these like high level kitchens where things are run very, in a very particular way. And so, dude, when I left cooking school, I was like, man, I'm going to move to Tulum. I'm going to live in this beach town. I'm going to have this cool job, like cooking at this restaurant. I thought life was going to be like very chill and very fun. And I showed up and I just got like kicked in the face with reality because um, so the, the chef who I worked for, he uh, both the guy who owned the restaurant and then the, the head chef who was a woman, they had both come from the New York restaurant world, like Michelin star kitchens, brigade system, super like strict chefs yelling, like that whole kind of Anthony Bourdain, like kitchen culture was like alive and well there. So I show up the first day thinking I'm just going to like start cooking. And the chef is like, actually, you're going to be on like, you're going to do the next like two months on fish duty. So the restaurant doesn't have any, uh, they had one refrigerator that was for all like the herbs and greens. All of the fresh fish that was coming in every day was just in these like giant coolers that were filled with ice. So every day I had to rotate all of these fish from like cooler to cooler, give them fresh ice and all that. And then I had to take these whole fish, scale them, gut them, and then break them down into, you know, fillets or, or whatever we were doing. And that was all day for like 14 hours a day. Um, and so it was just like crazy. And, you know, I'd come home and just like, like when you're working with fish that long, you can't even, even you shower, you're not going to get the smell, the smell off of you. Not to mention just like the sweat and it's hot out and all that. Um, and so I remember I'm like a week and a half in and I'm like, what the fuck did I do? Like, I don't like, this was a mistake. <laughs> and um I got very lucky because one of the line cooks, which is sort of like the line is where uh, like during service, everyone's kind of cooking on the line. It's like the, the main part of the kitchen. One of the line cooks uh, quit like two, two and a half weeks to when I was in there. And so the head chef who I was terrified of came up to me in the back while I'm like gutting fish. And he's like, you're on the line starting tonight. You have two days to learn the whole thing. Like, don't fuck up. And so... <laughs> So then it was like both a good thing and a bad thing because I was stoked to not be doing the, the fish stuff anymore and I was excited to to get on the line. But I also had to learn this whole station that's like, you know, when you work in a restaurant like that, you have a, a station and there's what they call mise en place, which are all these different 
things that you need to prepare going into service so that you can assemble all of these dishes. And this station had like 60 different items for its mise en place that I had to learn over the course of two days. Um, and so it was, it was a very interesting experience because I think it taught me like the whole thing was like, when there's a will, there's a way things that I didn't think that I could do, or that if you told me you have to do this, I'd be like, that's impossible. I can't do it. I was constantly being pushed hard enough to, to actually get them done. And so it definitely helped me like smash through a bunch of limiting beliefs and, you know, just like figure out how to, how to learn really quickly and, and, and things like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was, it was crazy. The whole, the whole experience, like there was, you know, we, it's tropical Mexico. So you can imagine the summer, it's already extremely hot out. And then all day long, you're cooking in front of an open fire. The, the restaurant didn't have any gas ovens or so. So it's a wood fired oven and two wood fired grills. So you're standing in front of the, anything you cook, you're doing it over the grill. You're standing in front of this grill all day. It's extremely hot fire. It's hot outside already. You're drenched in sweat and you're, you know, you're actually working like 12 to 14 hour days, uh, five or six days a week. So super, super intense, very physical, very demanding. Um, but like one of the best learning experiences I've ever had in my entire life. I like, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. Amazing. Wow. That's just picturing that is, is wild in my imagination going from scaling these just fish after fish all day, smelling like fish, and then you're just getting moved over to this station with 60 different items and your mise en place. Probably pretty intense environment, I imagine. It's just like, I've, I've worked in, in restaurants, um, usually in the, in the front end, in dive bars, sports bars, high-end restaurants, and it's, it's pretty intense, but yeah. it was always way more intense in the kitchen, especially when it was busy and, and it was slammed with, with tickets and they were just meal after meal, just going into a flow state shopping and like preparing. And what, what was the... What was the crew like? Like, what was what was the atmosphere like? Were, were people pretty cool, or was it crazy? Kind of the way Anthony Bourdain likes to describe. It was a little bit of both. I mean, everyone who I worked with, like, I think at the time, I the the chefs who were above me, they you know they were very intense and they like they they pushed all of us a lot, and I didn't appreciate it as much at the time as I do now. Um, you know, it's like they probably could have done things differently and made it a little bit easier for everyone. But I, I don't think I would have had as much like growth from the situation. Um, because yeah, like you said, like it's super intense, you know, you're on the line, you've got a restaurant full of people. This was a very popular restaurant. It was, it was packed full every single night. Um, and you have a, a chef who has very high demands for perfection and you're new. And, you know, if you screw up they're they're going to let you know, and then on top of that, you know, there's just the idea of like, you, you have people cooking over the like, in service, live cooking over fire, these wood fired ovens, there's like hot oil, there's knives, there's like, all this stuff. It's, it's, it's just very, very intense. Um, but what's interesting is when you when you cook in a restaurant, like, like the crew, the core crew was was pretty small. Um, you know, there are only, there were four of us on the line every night, plus one person who would do expediting, um, which is kind of like calling out the orders, telling you when to fire, which things. So it's five people in the kitchen. Um, and you know, you really, like you take on a very family dynamic where it's like, you know, you, you almost fight like siblings, but you like really love each other. And on the nights, like, you know, some nights it was just chaos and things weren't going well. And everyone's, you know, by the end of the night, everyone is just like fried and ready to like have a mezcal and go home. But then there's some nights where people like everyone's firing on all cylinders and you just get into this flow and it's like, it's a really, really good feeling. Um, and you end, you know, you end the night and you're just kind of on this high. And it was actually like when I stopped cooking professionally, I really missed that intensity the like night after night of really being like, I've compared it before to, you know, I've, I've never like acted on Broadway, but I think that it's like, it, ha it, there's a, there's a comparison there where it's like cooking in a restaurant is a form of art that you, it's not like you just create something once and then display it for people to consume. It's like, you're putting on a performance night after night after night. So every night is a new kind of performance for, for people to see. So you have to like keep, you know, you have to come correct over and over and over again. Um, and 
you know, you, you have a, a great service, but then you start the next day kind of fresh and you have to like go and, and do it again. And so it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, it's a very, very intense lifestyle that, uh, you know, I don't think I could do over the long term, but like the best learning experience I could have ever imagined. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's a live, you know, in the moment, creative act, just like acting or, or stand up comedy or even you know, yeah. some sort of martial arts type um, you know, performance where it's like it's here and then it's gone. And quality of that creativity is like all, all in the moment. It, it's all your your capability to kind of string it together and, and working together with the team is orchestrated like a symphony to kind of create the yeah. beautiful end product for that people you know, consume and, and experience through their aroma and, and the taste and, and the sight of it. And it's like everything all at once. It's, it's such a beautiful, it's really the, one of the highest expressions of, of, of mankind and really what led to our evolution in a lot of ways is this totally. ability to, especially cooking on an open flame. Like that's, that's at a whole there's, other level. There's nothing like it. Yeah. I mean, one of the best things about that experience was that, you know, like when you're in the kitchen at Hartwood, it's so hot and you're standing in front of a fire. Like if your phone is in your pocket, it'll fry your phone. So we would, every day we would just come in and like put our backpacks in the, this little like cupboard and you'd leave your phone in there because you couldn't have it on you. There was no, there was no service anyway. So you're all day, every day, just like very in the moment, you know, I would go 12 hours without looking at a screen. And even though it was like such intense work, I look back on it so fondly because it was so, um, it was so like embodied, you know, I was very in the moment. I was using my senses all day, every day. I was using my hands all day, every day. Um, using my body, you know, you're lifting big stock pots and fish and all that. Um, and it's just, it's a really nice way to be. Absolutely. And this is something that you share online in a really compelling way that really resonates with me is where we we have this opportunity to to step away from the phones, from the computers, from all the, the screens and the lights and the technology to focus on just holding a carrot and, and slicing and dicing and getting your hands in, inside of you know, the butt of a chicken to, to spread, you know, all sorts of brines and salt on that skin of that animal that gave its life for our nourishment. And it, it's such an important and powerful way to kind of connect with the present moment and with being human and, and being alive. And, and that's something that I really love about what you're, you're sharing. And it's so powerful. Yeah, I, I was just talking to my girlfriend about this the other day, because I really do believe that everyone need everyone should have like a tactile hobby. Um, and, you know, to, to get that experience and it could be woodworking, it could be, you know, pottery, um, it could be playing the piano. Like there, there's a bunch of different things you can do, but the nice thing about cooking is that everyone has to eat, right? So you're going to, you, you kind of have to do it anyway. And so if you can learn to really enjoy that and really become creative doing that, it can just bring so much to your life. Absolutely. And on, on the collective level as well, that's, it's the key to being a healthy human. You're never going to find health by ordering pre-made meals, by, by buying it out from restaurants. No. Because the sad reality is that they're all maximizing for profit. So yep. that means they're going to be using the lowest possible ingredients, you know, wherever they can. And and that's the tr the truth for 99% of, of restaurants and, and, and different food manufacturers. There are a, a small percentage that are going to be, you know, focused on quality over, over, profit but if we want to be healthy as, as a collective we all need to embrace the act of, of cooking for our, for ourselves it's there's no way around it it's essential and and the other side of the coin is some people see it as work and like as a chore but it's absolutely not you know this better than anyone it's like it's absolutely a source of nourishment and joy yeah and i think especially if you can you know like if you can get good at cooking it's such a powerful way to bring people together um that's like a big part of the equation that I think a lot of people ignore is like cooking is the, the like oldest and most common just uh, sort of catalyst for gathering people together. Um, like I can't tell you how powerful that's been for my like social life to, to be able to do that. You know, I host people for, for dinner all the time and it's just one of my, one of my favorite things, um, you know, and I think everyone should, everyone should at least have one dish that they can share with people. Like, I think I tell people that like, if you travel abroad and you eat a dish that you like really, really love, 
learn how to cook that. That's such a cool thing to be able to like, you know, bring something back to, to share with people um, that kind of speaks to it, like unique, uniquely speaks to your journey and, and where you've been and, and things like that. Um, and I think, you know, people, people ideally should have a bunch of those, but everyone should have at least one thing that they can, they can, you know, share with other people and, and bring people together around. Do you have any example of something like that, that you have yourself? I, yeah, I have a few. I mean, I definitely, you know, when I came back from Mexico, I would host people for dinner a lot and I would, there's this one dish in particular. So Hartwood is in Tulum, which is in an area called the Yucatan. It's that peninsula in the Caribbean. And the cuisine of the Yucatan is like one of the most interesting cuisines in, in all of Mexico. It's very, uh, it draws a lot from like Mayan roots. Uh, but then there's, there's obviously the, the European influence. There's a lot of Lebanese immigrants there. So you get aspects of that. But one of my all time favorite dishes is a dish called cochinita pibil, which is traditionally it's done by digging a hole in the ground, uh, building a fire under a bunch of hot stones, marinating a whole pig, burying that whole pig. Uh, so you marinate the whole pig, you wrap it in banana leaves, you bury it. And then you let it cook in the, the hot underground oven overnight. Um, and then that you, you, you shred it and it's served with, uh, you know, corn tortillas, um, pickled red onions and habanero salsa. And it's like just the, one of the most mind blowing combinations of flavors you've ever had in your entire life. Um, I still haven't done the whole underground oven thing, but I'll, I'll, I'll do it. You know, I'll, I'll get. Uh, pork butt, do the marinade, wrap it in a banana leaf, and then do it in a Dutch oven um, in in just a, you know a regular home oven. Make that with homemade corn tortillas, the pickled red onions, the habanero salsa, and that dish just it means a lot to me, and it's one of my favorite dishes of all time. So I've shared that with a lot of people. That's definitely one of my favorites. That sounds so good. Oh, it sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I yeah, it's like a top top five all time for me. Man. When it comes to traveling abroad and and experiencing different cuisines, have you have you traveled a lot? Traveled the world, kind of like trying out different restaurants, or is that something that you kind of have on the on the, on the future on the on the horizon? Something that you're you're kind of looking forward towards? I've definitely done a lot of travel, um, and I still have. Like, like uh, I'm planning on going to Japan next year for the first time, which has been somewhere that I've wanted to go for a real, I love, love, love Japanese cuisine. So that's been a, a big thing for a long time. So I'm really excited to finally make that happen. I still haven't been to Italy, which feels like a travesty at this point. Um, so there's definitely quite a few places still that I, I really want to travel for the food specifically, but I, you know, I've, I've done a lot of travel and food is always a, a huge part of it. Um, and it's cool going to places where like Brazil was really interesting for me. I'm not, I, I hadn't been exposed to Brazilian cuisine much at all outside of like, you know, Fogo de Chao type of Brazilian barbecue spots. Um, and I, I loved the food in Brazil. It was, it was so cool to just discover like new things. Um, Brazil has a lot of influence from West Africa in its cuisine. So you find like really, really cool, interesting stuff. They've, you know, they've got the Amazon there. So there's ingredients that come from the Amazon that, you know, we've never heard of in the United States that are these like super flavorful, interesting, um, like chilies and herbs and, and stuff like that. So I really like, uh, yeah, discovering cool, cool stuff like that. Um, uh, yeah, I've, I, d d food and travel are like synonymous for me. Anytime I'm traveling, uh, food is a big part of it. And it shapes a lot of the destinations that I choose to go to. It is. It's just one of the best best things about about life. Food. I. It adds so much, and it, it's it's difficult to put into words. It's something that's better experienced, but it's it's really just amazing. And one thing I've, I've been I was thinking about recently was just how we have this like I don't know sort of a, a stunted food culture in in, in America. And I, I think that kind of goes without yeah. saying, but it is funny to just like, you kind of imagine food and there's like this subset of like maybe a, a few dozen options and then we can kind of like mix and match them, you know, in our minds. But when you scale out to the global situation, it's almost like an infinite number, even 
if we were to be a little bit more in touch with the land, I think almost all of us would have wild herbs and spices and, and shrubs and plants that are edible that are just like growing in our local neighborhood. And yeah. even even just the ability to sort of ferment yeah. our own, you know, whether it's it's vegetables or, or dairy to kind of create kefir or our own cheese or our own sauerkraut. It, there's just, there's really a limitless, it's, it's almost an infinite palette from which to play with when, when looked at in, in the right way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, do you know who um, Sean Brock is, the chef? No. So he's a he's a really interesting chef who I admire a lot. But he's done a lot of his work is focused on like traditional regional cuisines from the American South, um, and it's fascinating because there is like you know he he kind of goes back to a time when there were a lot of areas in the South that you know people had their own like their own gardens, right? A lot of like Appalachia and, um, you know, there, there were a lot of like different influences from, from all over the world. There, there was a big influence from the slave trade tragically, but it, it shaped a lot of the, the cuisine and culture there. Um, and, you know, he's kind of uncovered for me some things that I really find fascinating, which is these like old food cultures that are very local, very tied to the land. They're full of like, these super heirloom varietals of like rice and corn and wheat and people were making them themselves and people were using traditional fats. Like there was a lot of cooking with animal fats and, um, you know, peanut oil even like traditionally was, was used a lot in the American South. And I think that we have this like um, um, American food has a very bad reputation kind of like internationally. But if you look, there's a lot of like really interesting kind of regional pockets of cuisine that you can trace back. Um, and what they all have in common is that they kind of like made use of what originated there. Um, and they made use of kind of like real whole ingredients. And so I try and think about, you know, I've lived in a few different places, um, you know, around the country. And like, one thing I try and do is, is hone in on that a little bit, you know, like I'm in Texas now and a big thing in Texas is that we have access to like incredible pasture raised meats. Um, so I eat a ton of meat here when I was in Tulum, I ate a ton of fish. I don't eat a lot of fish here because we don't have a uh, coast nearby. And so I don't have access to, to that stuff, but I do try and like think a lot about, okay, what's actually coming from here and how can I make use of that? Cause it, it, that's also the stuff that tends to taste the best. Why do you think, why do you think that is? Why, why do you think the stuff that's kind of nearby tastes, tastes the best? I think that, I mean, certainly when it comes to like vegetables, um, vegetables that are eaten in their season taste better. That's simply a fact. I mean, you could take anyone and, and give them like a local summer tomato versus something that was grown out of season in a greenhouse and they're going to taste a lot different. Um, and on top of that, just the, the transporting these things takes a lot away from them. Um, whether it's just the time that they sit on trucks and in shelves, or it's like things that they spray on them in order to, to make them last longer, but all these things kind of like eat into flavor. Um, and then I think the final thing is that, you know, if you just go to a grocery store, like we've become spoiled where we can go to any grocery store at any time, and basically get anything, you know, whereas like the tomatoes used to be like so special because they only came around at a certain time of the year. Right. And people would can them so that they could preserve them and, and have them in the winter. Um, and you know, there were just different seasons for, for different things. And these, these things became, they became things to celebrate. Um, whereas now we can basically get anything that's shipped in from all over the world at any time of the year, but rather than being these like kind of like local seasonal varietals, they tend to be, the versions of these crops that are just planted um, and grown for like to be as homogenous as possible, to be as high yield as possible, and to be as easy to transport and store as possible. And when you optimize for those things, the thing that that gets cut is optimizing for flavor. And so if like, you know, any most bread you get from the grocery store is made from like a couple varietals of wheat that have been bred to be as like hearty, sturdy, and, um, you know, drought resistant as possible. And then it's made with commercial yeast. And so it has no character. Whereas like, if you try bread that's made with an heirloom varietal of wheat that's 
specific to a certain part of the world that's made with, you know, a wild yeast sourdough starter, the flavor is just going to be so, so, so much better. Um, and I think in the industrialization of the food system, we've lost a lot of those um, kind of like local specific bread for flavor varietals of plants and grains and, and, and even animals. Such an important, such an important realization. It's almost like if you were to look at a beautiful handmade painting, that's, that's one of a kind that someone, you know, spent a lot of time painting every stroke versus something that was sort of, you know, sort of quickly made on, on a computer printed out. There's, there's a thousand copies and, and you kind of just see it. It's like it hits you in a different way. One, one really it does. has a deep, like deep meaning. And, and the other one's just sort of like, meh. <laughs> yeah. And I think that with food specifically, it's hard because I could, I could talk about this all day long, but like until you taste the difference in some of these things, it can be hard to conceptualize, but you do. And you're like, wow, like there's this, um, there's this varietal of rice called Carolina gold. And way back in the day in, in the Carolinas, it was this like prized um, type of rice. It was known to have the best flavor and it almost went extinct. And then this guy, um, uh, I forget what the guy's name is, but he runs a company called Anson Mills. And he basically tracked it down, replanted it and brought back this varietal of rice. And it's like, you try this rice and you're like, I didn't know that rice could be this flavorful. I didn't know there could be this much like nuance and, and, and flavor in, in just rice. Um, and that's true for a lot of different things. You know, there's like corn tortillas in Mexico that are made with these very specific heirloom varietals of corn that are just so much more flavorful than, than anything that you're, you're used to. And I think people really need to taste it in order to experience it. So like one thing that I've done, I, I haven't done one in a while, but I, I would like to, to do more of them in the future is I've done little like pop-up dinners um, here in Austin. And a big part of that is like showcasing these different things that I think people haven't tried yet because you're able to, you know, I could sit here and talk about it all day, but by actually serving someone this food, you're able to tell that story in a way that, that hits them so much harder. And when they're, they're actually able to try something and say, Oh my God, this, you know, this tortilla is amazing. This cornbread is amazing. And you're able to tell them, well, yeah, that's because it came from this specific thing. I think that really like seals the deal for people and, and allows them to really conceptualize how important this stuff is. It's such an, such an important part of life and, and that conceptualization, it really links deep in the health and in respect for the land and it's it's kind of this really important missing link in, in my mind is is if you were to really yeah. dig down in the foundation of, of what is going wrong out with everything, <laughs> there's clearly a lot of things going wrong, like a lot of things are fucked up, but the the real core of it that we can all kind of focus on is just cooking things from, you know, the in a bioregional things that have been raised well, sourced correctly, intentionally. Yeah. And and the more we do that, the more everything else will, will fall into place. That's it's, if you really think about it, that's such a core aspect of, of everything that's sort of topsy-turvy is this foundation of, okay, how are we feeding ourselves? How are we sourcing the food and, and starting there and, and just what, because in my own life, I know that once I focused on that, it, it's like mm -hmm. this, it was the soil of my soul. And then from that, I'm able to kind of sprout and grow the rest of my life from, from that soil of being able to cook proper food and in a way that's delicious and nourishing and I think um, at a larger level, that's such an important missing piece. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like what I was talking about with these different kind of like lost varietals of, of vegetables and grains and, and specific breeds of animals, like there's, there's almost always a correlation between uh, those and also having like a higher nutritional content, you know, because when we industrialize food and we mass process it, it tends to come at the expense of both flavor and nutrition. Yes. Yep. Those, those flavonoids, I, I think maybe they're called, or polyphenols. I don't know. The scientists, when they analyze this stuff, they give it all kinds of weird names, but it's like, yeah. well, you just eat it and you taste it immediately. And it's not some sort of hyper-engineered, genetically modified, chemically altered Dorito that explodes your taste buds 
to the point where you're just like in a stupor and the whole bag is gone, but it's like something that you savor and you hit the totally. whoa, this is really some amazing stuff. And I think we've all had that experience of, of the summer tomato is the perfect example because it's so different from these yeah. tomatoes that are mass grown in California, specifically be hardy so they can be shipped across the country without being bruised. And by the time it gets in the grocery store, that whatever flavor was in that thing is completely gone. You've got this like bland red mush in your mouth, but yeah. Yeah. I will say I'm like, I like Texas, but every time I'm back in California and I go to the farmer's markets, I miss living there. Like the, you're, I mean, Southern California specifically is like one of the best places on earth for food. Yeah. I would definitely spoiled down here, just farmer's markets every day with just an abundant amount of amazing produce. And I, I do know that the, the beef you have out there is also, also very important. Uh, you know, that's, I guess that's the trade-off is, is you get much, much better sort of um, anim- animalia, just like all, all of that is, is very yeah amazing. And, and the barbecue out there is, is next level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like I can go to the, the farmer's markets here and get world-class beef, lamb, pork, chicken, duck, like all of that. And I love that. I'm super grateful for it. Um, but yeah, the, the seasonal, vegetables and and all that from california is i I love it yeah i was thinking while you were talking about how do we sort of realign as as a as a people towards towards this do you and 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 also just the concept of a restaurant and going out to eat i feel like that's really taken a yeah really shifted in the past couple years where a lot of people are are kind of ordering delivery more but then at the same time we've we've got this inflation that is going to make a business that already has razor thin margins you know the restaurant industry very difficult to maintain, especially in a way where they're providing higher cost, more nutrient dense fruits and vegetables. Yeah. How do how do you see this involving, and, and how do you how do you kind of um, play a part in this yourself? I think you you cook for you, you mentioned that you 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 host meals and, and and cook for people out to provide these different meals. What what is your perception of this whole kind of situation? I think this is tough because the you know there's a reason I chose not to go into the restaurant industry specifically. Um, it's a really, really hard business, no matter how you spin it. It's one of the hardest, like you mentioned, the, the margins are, are super thin as is. And then if you're really trying to, to do things right, I mean, if you were, if you really did everything right, you, the only way to do it is to pass on a pretty high cost to the customer. Um, and you know, the few restaurants out there that I know of that are doing things right, they, they do that. Um, and then on top of that, you have this inflationary environment that we're in right now, which means that these margins that these restaurants have are getting even thinner and they either won't survive or they'll be forced to, to pass along, you know, those costs to the customer. So I think going out to eat is going to become more expensive. Um, I think a lot of people over the past 10 years, when we were in this super low interest rate environment, that was kind of wonky from an economics perspective, a lot of people got used to this idea of like, oh, I can just order cheap food on Uber Eats and, you know, eat that every night. And it's like, I think those days are over. I think that's all that's going to become way too expensive for people. Um, I don't necessarily have thoughts on, on how we fix like the restaurant industry. I think my thought on it for, for a while now and the reason that I, I do what I do on the content side has been uh, people need to cook at home. Like that, that's how you kind of fix this. You, you get more people to, to cook at home more often and they, and you get them to do that because it's going to be cheaper than eating out. Uh, it's going to be a lot healthier than, than eating out. And in a lot of cases, it's going to be a lot more delicious and better than, than eating out. So a big part of what I'm trying to do is just give people the like knowledge and the skills that, that they need to do that. And, you know, it's not saying you shouldn't go out to, to eat because I love to go out to, to cool restaurants as well. Um, but I think for a lot of people, it's going to become something that they have to do a little bit less often. Um, and, you know, I think I think so many people that I know are just are feeling the effects of inflation right now. Life has gotten a lot more expensive for everyone. And a really good way to help combat that is to, to cook more of your meals at home. Um, but yeah, taking a step back, I mean, I think with the, with like the restaurant industry, it's, it's really tough. I don't know what's, what's going to happen. I think that figuring out ways to get really high quality, healthy food to people at scale is a really, really interesting challenge. Um, 
And for someone who's really ambitious and, and wants to make a big impact on the world, I think that's a, a really great problem to, to work on. Um, but I think it's really hard. You look at even something like Sweetgreen, right? Like they've managed to kind of reach a certain scale. Um, but like they went public before their business was even profitable as far as I know. Um, and on top of that, they're still not like they're, they're still using bad oils in, in certain places and, and things like that. Cause it would be impossible to make their, their prices work if they weren't. So I would love to see someone do it. You know, I'd love to see like a, a burger chain that's all regenerative meat, no seed oils, fries are cooked in tallow. Um, I, I, I've talked about this idea with, with a bunch of people who I know, including some people who are in the restaurant industry and, you know, we ran some numbers and it just, it would be a really tough business to be in. Um, so I, I hope it happens, but I think for me, I'm going to focus on helping people cook at home rather than, than trying to, to go out and solve that. Cause I don't have a good idea for how to do it. Yeah. It, it, it almost seems like there would be another, there would need to be another stream of income where if you've got part of the business is like online teaching people how to like cook and, and prepare food at their own, you've got this, you know, supplementary sort of income stream. And then you've got like the restaurant, which is almost more like a break-even passion project. That's also, totally. I think, I think that what's really coming to mind is this, like, how do we serve this idea of like really powerful, amazing food, but also with community where it's not just like, you know, you can have dinner parties. Yeah. And it's a small um, setting, but it, there's something magic about going to a new setting and then being surrounded by people, like yeah. lots of people all enjoying the same thing. And it's, it's kind of sad to see that, um, one be sort of uh, shriveling um, in the midst of, of yeah. some of the macroeconomic conditions, but also being somewhat shaded and, and shadowed by the fact that a lot of the ingredients are potentially, you know, inflammatory. Once you learn about, you know, what foods are, are causing health, it's, that's that's yeah. been the most difficult part of grappling with with the whole sort of health situation. It's just like, oh, everything's in feed oils and blah blah blah. Well, and it's interesting because, so I mentioned these pop-up dinners that I've done and these, so I, I partnered with some friends of mine who own a, a ranch uh, out east, east of Austin, and we would set up this beautiful long table out, outdoors. We'd cook everything over um, like open fire and, you know, we'd, we'd use super high quality ingredients. Everything would be cooked in, in real oils. Everything was locally sourced from the farmer's market, all of that. And the only way to make that work, you know, for like, we barely made money on any of these and that wasn't really the goal. But like, when you think about the amount of hours of work that we put into this versus like what we generated, it was, it was nothing. And we were still charging high prices for the tickets to the dinner because we had to, it was the only way to, to make it work. And, you know, people, some people that I know complained about the price and they thought it was too expensive. And I was like, you know, I get that, but the problem is you're, I think so many people are used to like, here's what dinner out should cost. Not knowing that even the nice restaurants that you go to in Austin, they're cooking with seed oils. I can guarantee you that. So for us to source everything locally, make everything by hand, only use animal fats and olive oil to do our cooking. Like it really, the ingredients get more expensive. And I think there's a lot of people who just, they, they haven't, uh, they haven't figured that out yet. So to them, it feels egregiously expensive. Yeah. And, and the oils are, are one thing where it's, you know, the, the cost like per meal is probably pretty low for that. It's it's crazy to think that. But at scale, you know, when you're serving dish after dish, you know, yeah. that's where it really, really adds up. And uh, it, it's it's fascinating to to contemplate. And, and the open fire cooking is, is another really interesting part of what you're doing that we didn't talk talk too much about how how does that differ from cooking on like cooking on the stove with a pot and a pan as, as most people are, are used to it's it's very different i mean it's i think that everyone should should do it and should try it because you'll learn so much more than you would cooking you know if you follow a recipe it's going to tell you like turn your oven on to 400 turn your burner to medium high heat and so you can kind of like follow that recipe without ever tapping into like your cooking intuition with open fire, you are basically engaged in like a constant dance with this like living, breathing thing that is changing all the time. It's, you know, it's like very uh, volatile and capricious and, you know, the wind could change it or the outdoor temperature could change it. And so you have to cook with your instincts. You have to like 
feel the heat and decide if that's hot enough. You have to listen to the sounds. You have to look at what's happening in front of you. And I think that it's a really good way to cook because it forces you to, to tap into those instincts and forces you to um, rely on them. And so I love it. I think it's like the best way to cook. And on top of that, it's, it's just more flavorful. You know, when you, uh, when you burn wood, you, you go from like, you know, when you first start burning it, it, it's smoking. So you get a lot of smoke flavors. You can do different things with that. Then you get a flame and then um, eventually it kind of collapses down into like charcoal. And that's where you get that really like, uh, like very powerful, long lasting hot heat that you would want to like cook a, a steak over. All of those different processes release different compounds and release different flavors into the food. Um, and just, you know, the, the wood itself is like so full of, of these compounds and these flavors and the smoke and all of that adds into um, the flavor of the food. And like, there's a lot of, there's definitely like a whole movement in cooking that's all about like precision and kind of taking this very like sciencey approach to food. Um, like, you know, the food lab and J. Kenji Lopez Alt and the modernist cuisine guys. And, you know, it's like these people got really into like, we're going to sous vide a steak and then, you know, we're going to sear it at this perfect temperature and all that. And it's like, you can make good food that way, but there's a certain like soullessness to it. Whereas I would so much rather have a steak that's cooked over the open fire, gets all those flavors, even if it's not as like precise as what you can do with all this fancy equipment, there's a certain like energy that it takes on that is, is so much more exciting. And so I think when you cook with fire, you, you actually learn to value precision less um, that, than you would in, in a kind of like modern kitchen, but it ends up yielding a lot of really beautiful results. So if someone were to want to get started with that, if they wanted to try and become like an Anthony Bourdain of the open flame, how, how would they begin? Would they just like light a fire and, and put like some meat on it? Like so <laughs> I think the best way to start is by, is to do it, get a charcoal grill. That's like charcoal is the perfect intro to open fire cooking. You know, it's like the, if you want to do true open fire cooking where you're taking wood and, and burning it, you know, that, that can take a, a while to, to do, you know, it's not practical to like do on a weeknight. Whereas charcoal is like, great. Like you can get a charcoal chimney, light up charcoal in, in 15 minutes and cook with it. And you get, it, it gives you a lot of the like benefits and the experience of, of open fire cooking with way more ease of use. And so I tell people like, if you want to get started with, with that, get a, get a good charcoal grill um, and, and start playing around with that. And then once you feel really comfortable there, then go for the actual like wood fire stuff. But you could learn a ton on, you could spend a year cooking on charcoal and I love charcoal. Um, there's, there's a ton to learn there. And I think it's like the most accessible way to do it at home. It's so funny because that, that would have definitely been the way that our ancestors would have cooked for eons and most of us probably only have the experience of like maybe making schmores or like roasting some weenies and that's like yeah. the extent of it. And I also see people like, you know, you just, you have to learn how to cook with fire. Like you don't want to put a steak over like a flame, like it'll completely burn it. You know, you want to, you want to actually cook a, you want to um, light a fire, get it ripping hot and kind of have those, th that wood collapse on itself to the point where it's kind of like these red hot coals and that's going to give you this like really powerful heat that you can that you can cook a steak over. But I see people like trying to cook food in a flame. And the thing is like a flame actually isn't that hot and it's going to like char your food. Um, <laughs> so there's yeah, there's a lot there's a lot to learn. Luckily with charcoal, charcoal is basically a shortcut to get to those hot coals. That makes sense. I, I was looking at it through like the schmores angle where like you need the flames kind of lapping it to like cook it. But I guess once it collapses down you basically got a charcoal grill do you just put like the steak kind of right on top of that or i'll usually do a grate over that and then you know with like with uh sorry this i'm watching my uh my cousin's dog and he's going crazy right now i'm gonna put them outside give me one second come on everybody outside. Yeah, that dog <laughs> loves attention um yeah so i'll put a grate over those coals and then with um with when you're cooking food over charcoal, you kind of have like two factors to consider. One is how hot the actual coals are. And then the second is how far away from those coals your food is, right? So like you see the Argentine style grills are called Santa Maria grills. And you, those are ones that like go up and down 
Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen those, but they're on like a pulley system. And the reason for that is that like, you know, if you want to get a really good sear on the outside of a steak, you might put that grate really close to the flames, get it super hot. But then you want to lift it up and keep turning the steak to like get some gradual heat bubbling up from below to slowly cook it through. That that sounds much, much better than what I was imagining. Just like a, a piece of meat on a steak. <laughs> That's like this. This is imagine something. Yeah, this is sparking a lot of uh, a lot of thoughts for for what we could see with like a you know a better food future where we're tapping back into our roots and, and reconnecting with with real flavorful food and the experience of, of cooking with with community over an open flame, which in itself is a powerful technology yep. for for all kinds of things. Um, so yeah, it's and it, and it's been great hearing your story and you sharing your own personal passion and fire for this I definitely have uh, a reinvigorated sense of, of wanting to get in the kitchen, wanting to cook, wanting to, wanting to share meals with, with friends and family. I hope everyone listening catches that as well, because it's such a powerful, such a powerful practice. And, and you really embody that and, and, and share it. And is there anything else that you think we missed or wanted to sort of share with, with anybody who's, who's listening? I think that that definitely sums it up. I mean, yeah, I think if you're I, I hope that it inspires you because that's the goal. And and if you're listening, like, yeah, go and start simple, but just like develop a, a cooking practice. And, and, you know, if you, if you want to learn more, uh, reach out to me on Twitter and I'm happy to chat. Um, but it will bring a, a ton of value to your life. I can, I can guarantee that if you, if you invest the time to, uh, to learn how to cook and, and start doing it regularly. Beautiful. Miles. Thank you. Thank you, Case.